Guts and Grit Podcast. A podcast where we discuss overcoming the odds, resiliency, and never giving up. Join us each week as host John Melson, Joy Vatrebeck, and Mark Renahan discuss coming back from failure and never quitting. Guts and Grit, it's go time. Hello there, and welcome to the inaugural Guts and Grit podcast. I am one of your three hosts, Mark Renahan. To my left here with me is the lovely Joy Vacherback. And of course, our good friend John Melson is our third host. John is not in the same state as us, but we hope as the shows go on, we're going to all get together. Now, you may be wondering, what is this podcast all about? Well, John and I are old friends, and Joy and I have worked together on podcasts for a while. John, who some of you may know, is an incredibly distinguished veteran. Uh, He's going to tell us all about this. I'll probably get the number wrong, but he has deployed overseas too many times to get into. Uh, He has some amazing stories of his actions on behalf of the United States of America, but that's not what this podcast is all going to be about. Of course, a lot of it's going to be about John, but we're going to discuss a lot of other things like overcoming the odds uh, and, you know, just having a little bit of guts and grit in today's kind of crazy 2022 world. So first, I will introduce myself. My name is Mark Renahan. You may remember me from my older podcasts or the fact that I shared them all on Facebook and harass you. My old co-host here and still co-host is Miss Joy Vacherbeck. Joy, how are you? Good. How are you, Mark? Uh, good. Thank you want to tell everyone a little bit about yourself? Well, the same as Mark. You may remember me from the host of Protecting Our Freedoms here at the American Security Council Foundation. I am very happy to be here on Guts and Grit. I... Um, have overcome odds myself. Absolutely. I was at my private pilot's license at 17, and back in those days, not saying how old I am, but it really was more of a man's world, so. 25, 26, I think people I would love, tell you. That's great. But now, without further ado, let me introduce to you, oh, actually, one more thing. I want to introduce our engineer, Noah. Noah will no. come in from time to time, but I also want to introduce our other co-host, John Melson. Johnny, how are you? I'm doing all right, Mark. How are you guys doing out there? We're doing Good. fantastic. John, where, where are you now? What state are you in? I'm actually stationed at Fort Benning, Georgia. Okay, you're in Fort Benning, Georgia now. I, I, I know you move around a lot, so I wasn't sure where you were. So, so John, I mean, I, I want to just jump right into it. Uh, we're going to discuss in today's first show like a little bit about your history. But, you know, I think at some point we're all going to talk about manhood and, and, you know, beating the odds. And I think if anyone could talk to any, anyone about beating the odds, that would be you. Would you agree? Uh, I've, had my, uh, I've had my bouts with being down and out. Right? Yeah. Just, and just so everyone is aware, John, um, despite being one of the most accomplished humans you'll ever meet, is the single most humble man on planet Earth. But do not worry, I am here to make up for that, so you will hear me being the other way. But Johnny, l- let's start. I mean, I know you have a very distinguished uh, veteran career, and I know there are a lot of people who want to hear about that. But maybe you could just take us back to uh, when you were young and how it all started. Well... Mark, we, we both grew up, you and I, we grew up basically the same neighborhoods. You know, I was over in West Roxbury, Rosendale, High Park area of Boston growing up as a youngster. Um, blue collar family, uh, grew up in several members of my, uh, my family, male role models, all had served in, in the military, whether it was the Army or the Marine Corps. Um, and two of my very close uncles of mine, uh, I spent a lot of time with as a, young, as a youngster, uh, they were both enlisted in the Marine Corps. And I saw the the image that they portrayed to me, as well as others in the neighborhood, uh, the respect they had, the, the way they carried themselves. And then afterwards, when they got out of the Marine Corps, the success that followed them, 
because of some of the life choices they made by enlisting and serving. Um, it, it really set something off in me where it was like, hey, you know what, I wonder if I got the stuff and maybe I could be as successful as they were as, you know, as Americans, as patriots, as a Marine, um, and, and now as they are now as dads, as fathers. They were extremely successful in my eyes. Yeah, I mean, I, I know we're going to discuss manhood a lot. And by the way, Joe, you have your husband is a Marine. He yeah. is. Yeah, yes, so, he is. And he has overcome the uh, some odds. He too, has. Man. He has. His second tour, he was his vehicle was blown up in a roadside bomb. So yeah. So I mean, it's we have all kind of a little bit together. But I know one of the things we're going to discuss, Johnny, is is manhood here. I know that that's you know in today's society, it just seems it's kind of been taking us a, a small backseat. I don't want to say total, but uh, and I know that like being a, a good father is a is a huge mm -hmm. part of manhood. Um, so that's, you know, something that we'll tap into. Now, Johnny, uh, a lot of times I, I, I see you on social media and, and you always train to be hard to kill and you have that warrior spirit. So at, at what age did you decide that the Marine Corps, I think that's your first service, you were in the Marine Corps. Uh, right. At what age did you decide that this is for me and and what made you want to join the Marine Corps? Okay, uh, to everybody out there, including to you, Mark, this is going to be sh shocking. Uh I didn't make the choice. Okay. Uh, right. So as, as we were kids growing up, I think, I think you knew, everybody knew about me. Like I dreamed to someday, somehow be in the NHL as we were all kids growing up, played hockey. I rollerbladed to and from the rink, to and from school, everything in my life evolved around hockey. And it didn't, I wasn't moving anywhere towards that, accomplishing that dream. And I came home from high school one day and I'll never forget his name. It was Sergeant Perlman. He was sitting in my kitchen and I walked in my house and my mom greeted me at the front door. She's like, John, you have company. And I was like, well, I, who's here? Is it Mikey? Is it Woody? Is it my buddy Steve? And she's like, oh no, come on in the kitchen. I go in the kitchen and there's a Marine Corps recruiter sitting there. And he's like, hello, John, I'm Sergeant Perlman. He got up and came over and greeted me. And I looked at my mother. I said, what, do, what is he doing here? <laughs> and she's like, well, Hockey's not panning out. You don't have a job and you're about to graduate high school. You're going to, you're going in the Marine Corps and figure your life out. You're not going to be a bum living in my house and not work. And so I sat down with him and she hovered over my shoulder and he looked at the different types of jobs, trying to sell me on the idea. And I, in the back of my head, I was like, yeah, okay. I'm just going to say yes and get him out of here and I'm going to make her happy. And then, you know, Three and a half, four months later, off I was to Paris Island. <laughs> I gotta be honest, I never knew that, to be honest with you. That, I don't think anybody knows that, John. So that's no, it. That's you, a you, look at, story. you look at me now, you look at how things turned out for me now, and everyone thinks back like, oh yeah, he probably wanted to do that his whole life. No, I did not. I did not want to pursue. I, I, I emulated and I worshiped uh, my uncles uh, for watching them mature and, and be successful after serving in the Marine Corps. And I was like, yeah, you know, that's, I, you know, but I wasn't ready to put that work in, if that makes sense. I wasn't ready to, to have enough guts and grit to go ahead and put myself through that. Uh, so we were young kids, Mark, right? And I, I kept, I did not want to be in denial of letting my childhood dream go that, you know, I couldn't be the next Chris Nyland or Jay Miller on the ice. <laughs> <laughs> hey, John, I have a question for you. Was that just your mom's decision or your father as well? So I, my mom and dad divorced when I was 12. Okay. So that, that was that was my mom leaning on me. Wow. And a lot of long days at Paris Island where I was 
not happy with her pushing me to do that. But I look back now and it's probably one of the best things ever happened to me because who knows where I would have ended up. And, you know, I mean, what were you, 17 or 18 years old? You know, I, I think that I'm, I'm turning 50 in September. God help me. Uh, but, I mean, you think of how young and, and what kids we were back then. And, again, like Joy, for example, Joy, <laughs> she's going to kill me for this, but Joy wanted to be a treasure diver when she got out of high school. So Joy spent... <laughs> Uh, how many years uh, diving for treasure? I mean, I, I, um, 21. I was 21. For those of you who don't know, Joy is a very small person. So for her to go out with all, you know, the treasure divers weren't exactly the, you know, petite no. young lady. So she went out and took a little guts and grit, I think, to yeah. go out and do that. So that, that's, uh, that's interesting. So, John, you get out of high school and you, you sign up for the Marine Corps. For those kids who might be listening, what was it like when you were a young John? I mean, would you take a bus down to Paris Island? No, they, you know, the, they bring me down to MEPS the morning you ship out downtown Boston, right? Go down there and you, you, you'll meet up with a whole bunch of, uh, cherries, bunch of, bunch of guys. We all got, we still got our hair. Everybody's still, you know, a nasty, as they say, a nasty civilian, right? And we, we're like just clinging on to whatever bit of home life before it gets stripped away from us. You know, we had the, the little Sony Walkmans and every, you remember the little yellow ones? Yeah, yeah everyone's trying to just blot out what's taking place. They get their headphones in, like, uh, we'll see what happens when we get there. They put, they bring us over to Logan. It was actually a group of five or six of us out of Boston that night, that morning. And we flew down and you get down there, you fly down to Paris Island, they get you at the, at the airport, and they bus you on to Paris Island. And you probably don't sleep for the first 48 hours. It's just go, 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 go. Uh, they, I watch these Marine Corps boot camp videos and it gives me chills. My, what hair I do have, which is just on my arms, <laughs> it stands up uh, with chills when I see the, the welcoming to Paris Island videos and the drill instructor steps up on the bus and he gives his welcome speech and he tells you when you get off the bus, there's yellow footprints, you better get out there and get, find your place to stand on those yellow footprints. And that's, you know, you, here you are. It's, it, and it finally hit me when he came, when that drill instructor came up, and he talked to us in that frog voice. And I was like, wow, this guy sounds like he would just like look at me and absorb my soul. <laughs> I, was, I was like, look at the shape this guy is in. And, the, and you see the, the ribbons on his uniform. I don't even know what they're for at that point. And I'm just like, wow, he's got a lot. So he's probably killed. I'm thinking they're for bodies, right? <laughs> I'm like, this guy's got a lot of bodies. Like he's a, he, this guy's no joke. And I'm like, I don't know if I got what my uncles got. I don't know if I could, they, they were tough nuts. I'm like, I don't know if I got what they got. And when he said, get off my bus, move. And guys started slack slowly, lazily moving along like, yep. And then drill instructors just piled up on the bus and there were bodies flying everywhere. And I was like, oh, it's time to move. <laughs> now I got out there and there was a guy already standing in yellow footprints. And that's where I knew, like, I have to establish myself. I come out and I'm looking around for yellow footprints on the ground. And I just shoved the guy out of the way. I was like, yeah, those are mine now. <laughs> I stood there, then, he, then he started getting yelled at. So I was like, oh, I'm good now. Right? <laughs> so <laughs> now boot camp for the, anybody out there who's not military. Listen, how long was your Marine boot camp, John? Marine, Marine Corps boot camp was 12 weeks. 12 weeks. Now, would you say... Up at this till this point in your life, that was obviously the hardest thing you've you've probably ever had to accomplish. Not now. I mean, up, up to that up to that point. Obviously, yes. I know now. Uh, well, I'm going to throw something out there. Any of my family out there listening, they'll understand this. Uh, 
spending a lot of my time being raised on, under my grandmother, drill instructors really didn't have much on her. Like she, ran a, she ran a strict house. Uh, and so I, I contribute that to some of my success to adapting to that rigid lifestyle once we got there. All right. So, John, after, you know, you finish, you're out of the Marine Corps. Where, where were you originally stationed? Uh, so when I, when I got on Paris Island, um, I was stationed at uh, Camp Lejeune, North Carolina. All right. Now, Johnny, I, I forget, but was was there, I mean, we were, what was that, in the 90s, early 90s that was probably? Yes, that was, uh, I ended up being in during Desert Storm. All right. You, did you go to that one? No, I didn't end up going. And, and, you, and the funny part is, is when you missed that, you probably said, I missed the tour, not knowing what was coming your way later on in life. Well, I mean... I thought I could hold my own, but I, I mean, being that young and the, the fear of war, I, I'm not going to lie. I mean, to this day, I get into an ambush or an IED striker, any type of contact with the enemy. I'm, I'm still fearful for my life. Uh, yeah. So but there was, there was a sense of fear being 18, 19 years old. Like, wow, this could, this could be the end of it. I don't have any children. I've never been married. Am I considered, I'm not even of age to drink alcohol legally. <laughs> But you're from right, Boston, like, so that might have been different. Have I, have I officially crossed over into be becoming a man yet, and I'm getting sent, possibly sent off to war? So it was, it it, was, it made me nervous, right? And then uh, my mom came down with cancer, and uh, that became a hardship. And the uh, the master sergeant in the Marine Corps, Master Sergeant Williams, I love that guy. He took me under his wing, uh, old black guy, Vietnam vet. Uh, he said, I reminded him of his son. He had no problem putting me in my place when I messed up. And I appreciate that. And I, if he's alive today, I wish I could thank him. Uh, but he helped me uh, get a hardship transfer up to the Naval Air Base in South Weymouth so I could be close to my mother while she was dealing with cancer. And I spent my last year in the Marine Corps at the Naval Air Base in South Weymouth um, and worked out pretty good. The Marine Corps had a hockey team there, so I couldn't <laughs> play the NHL. But I got to play for the Marine Corps. Yeah, I mean, and, uh, at an age, at age 18, to be, you know, going through the Marine Corps and just, it, again, you probably, like you said, becoming a man and then having to deal with the hardship of your mother. Uh, that, again, is, you know, we're going to keep going back to this, but guts and grit. That's mm -hmm. just kind of kind of getting through it. A lot of people, you know, might have had a breakdown. I don't know what the word is anymore, but you know what mm -hmm. I mean, going through things like that. So uh, I, I actually, John, as much as well as I know you, I didn't know all of this, so... Uh, this, yeah. <laughs> is, this, is, this is actually interesting. But before I go any further, John, how many times have you deployed since now that you're age 50? You've deployed overseas how many times? Uh, in the Army, I got 16 years in the Army. I've deployed nine. You've de <laughs> so when you're 16 years, you've deployed nine times, and that is to Iraq and Afghanistan? Yes. So that's, that's 16 years in the Army. Then, you know, I have three years coming over from the Marine Corps. I just didn't deploy during the Marine Corps. I got you. Okay. So... All right, so now you're up in Weymouth, correct? And you're, and you're, how many years were you in the Marine Corps for? I did three years active duty. Now, I, John, I know you had your own uh, health scare. Is that correct? Yes, I did. Yeah. You, do you want to get into that? It's up to you. You don't have to if you don't want to. Sure. Sure. It, well, it, it wasn't in that close of time frame. Oh, okay. I, okay, so I'm, I'm forgetting that. So, all right, well, let's go back then. So now we're up in Weymouth, and what go from there. Where, where are you going next? So... Uh, I'm at Naval Air Base South Weymouth. Uh, I was attached to the aviation unit, and there was a, I cannot remember his name, 
but I worked directly for the command sergeant major for the Marine Corps detachment there. And I, I, I did all the odds and ends stuff because they really didn't have my job position there. So it was kind of like the Marine Corps was taking care of me, right? For me, take care of me so I could take care of my mom. And, and nice. I, I love the Corps for that. Nice, very nice. Where, they could, where the Marine Corps could do, <laughs> they could get you bad in another way. Mm. But in this situation, um, looking back now as an older man, they, they really helped me out a lot. And while I was there, um, I had taken the Boston police exam and I was hoping, you know, my family post military service had pretty much most got into law enforcement. So I was just trying to follow in their footsteps. I was like, if I just like walking in the snow, they made the footprint. I can't, I'll be just as successful as long as I keep stepping in their footprints, right? Not have to make a new trail. So I took the police exam and then I was just riding it out, waiting. And I was just working odds and end jobs, construction laborer, um, worked at a welding shop for a while. And then I got the call to go to the Boston Police Academy. So I was out of the Marine Corps for about a year and a half, two years. And then I got the call up to go uh, and take the physical exam for the Boston Police Academy. And I pursued that. I went through the academy. Uh, it was a great experience. Again, it extended out my network of, of friends, especially out, out throughout the city of Boston area. Um, and, you know, you know, at that, right around that same time, I had found out that I had other family members that I was not aware of that I, during that time frame, um, you know, my, my dad, he's my dad, Brian Melson, he's my dad. But at that point I was an adult and I found out, um, that he wasn't my real dad and my real dad was actually Michael Broderick. And I love them both very much. Um, both been extremely supportive, but what a shock. Here I am, having gone through everything, I'm about to be out there and uh, protect and serve the citizens of Boston, and I'm getting this bomb dropped on me. Um, you know, dad's not dad. Dad is actually that other person over there. And both of them stepped up in a big way, like, hey, I'm, I still wanna be your dad. And the other one's like, I can't replace the memories of not being your dad, but moving forward, I, I, wanna, I wanna be in your life. And I had, I got two beautiful kids right now. Both my, my dads are pumped being grandfathers with healthy kids. Uh, my kids doing well and they're still up in that area as well. Yeah. And grand, grandparents love uh, grandkids mm. more than, more than anything. And, and uh, John, I can recall, um, I don't even know if you're going to remember this, but years when you were a cop and I was uh, bleacher security at Fenway, uh, yes. there was a few nights where I, I actually, and I will say this, I, I recall, I mean, for those of you who don't know John and you can't tell from the video, John is a monstrously large human being and in his, in his gear, whether it's police, military or whatever, he is a presence to say the least. But, uh, I remember you were making an arrest. It was a drunken fan who had leapt over the Fenway, um, you know, and was on the field, like running around. It was after the game, but. You were very pleasant to them. I do recall that. You were very kind to them. And they were actually not as, you know, they were like, what's going to happen when you were like, you know, you're trying to explain it to them. But I remember telling the, the guys afterwards, like, hey, I saw Johnny Melson at Fenway when I was working. He's a cop now. So that was, uh, that was an interesting time, to say the least. A simpler time, as I like to say, John. Yeah, I used to. Uh, so I was working out of the District 4 area for the Boston Police. Um, I really liked that area. Um, I got the... As soon as I got on the, on the job, they assigned me a walking beat. And I was down in Lennox Projects. 
And I was like, you sure you want to put me down in Lennox projects? Uh, like, you sure me? They're like, you're a big guy. You'll be all right. So I ended up developing a, a nickname by the folks in the neighborhood. They called me Robocop. Um, <laughs> That's great. Um, I would talk to the kids all the time. The single moms would come out. I would help the kids sometimes with their homework and stuff. Um, the drug dealers in the area, they knew who I was. You know, I, there was some talks that would go on. Hey, if you don't want any problems with me, you know, I'm work, work, working, I'm walking the beat. Don't be out here where I'm going to catch you then. Like, it's cool. You know, I'm going to keep the streets clean. I don't want any problems while I'm out here working, but I know you're going to still try and hustle. But if you're out here and, and you're seen, I'm going to take you down. So be better at this than me. <laughs> that's, right? a, that's actually... That's a good uh, a good little statement I gotta use again. So that that I never knew that you were down on the Lennox. That's actually very interesting. So I mean, again, and would you attest that some of your experiences in the Marine Corps helped you, um, you know, working as a cop in the Lennox? Yeah, I think in a very big way. Um, there were a lot of times in the Marine Corps, like both literally and figuratively, you get punched in the face, right? And you just got to recompose yourself and do the right thing, right? And that paid off immensely as a police officer because people will try your patience, right? Um, everybody, everybody's watching you. You're the person out in uniform. So everyone's going to turn to look at you to see what the right answer is to be. And that, you know, as a police officer, you, your efforts not, aren't to escalate. Like we're not in a hockey fight. Like I'm not going to go up and be the aggressive police. Sure, I'm trying as a police officer, I'm trying to keep the peace. So my, my efforts are to at that time in life is to de-escalate, right? And reinforce trust and confidence in the public. Hey, I'm, I'm not here just to knock heads, but if I have to, I will, but I prefer to shake hands and, and steer people in the right direction. Um, some of my, my best times uh, working at Fenway, Mark, was uh, when, when they would give me the, the plainclothes details. That's back when scalping tickets was illegal. I had a lot of fun scalping I tickets. <laughs> Yeah, that I, I recall actually seeing you once or twice in your undercover gear, and I, I a bunch of the different cops. I, I mean, I, I grew up in uh, with a lot. You know, we both did with tons of Boston cops, plenty that are still out there today doing a good job. And I mean, uh, it, it's a shame that you know the the last couple of years the police have been. You know, I, I and I'm not defending any cops who get caught doing terrible stuff, but in general, mm -hmm. I think that uh, they've gotten a bad rap. And, and I'm yeah. not, I'm no angel, and I was, I'm not a, you know. In my youth, I certainly had some run-ins with them, but, you know, I, I always try to explain to people that, like you're just saying, John, like you walk through the community. I, I think that's one of the problems today is that they don't, I don't think they have like uh, beat cops as much anymore that are just walking about. And that might yeah, be- back, back then it was Commissioner Evans and they, they were with a big push with what they call community policing for us to, to be out there and be in touch with the community versus just huddled in a, in a vehicle, more standoffish. Right. So they wanted they really wanted to promote more interaction between, you know, you getting to know your beat, know the area you're working in, get to know the people. Um, and especially like the drug dealers, get to know who the players are. Yeah. Right? Know your area. And, and John, what's the difference between then and now? Um, well, I'm no longer in law enforcement, so I couldn't okay. say um, to experience it. But from what I see, you know, and, and and a lot of my close friends I still talk to back there. This, it's just a lot of shift, I would say. Uh, later in the shows, we're gonna talk about manhood, 
And it would also lead over into, I'm not going to comment on it because I'm not a woman, but womanhood, right? We've, I think we've lost the sight um, raising children with certain levels of respect mm-hmm. um, and, and how to carry themselves, right? So back then, like Mark, when we were kids, you know, I'd be down at Cleary Square, right? And it might, might have, may not have been some alcoholic beverages in the close proximity of the park benches. And at that time, the Boston police would show up and they didn't want to ruin your life. They're not there to arrest you. You know, they, a bunch of us would run off. Those of us that got caught, they'd make us pour it out. They'd drive us home, ring the bell. Our parents would come out. And I'm standing there, my head down, and, and I'm being brought home by the police. They're like, is this yours? And, you know, there's my uncles. Oh, yeah, we, we got it from here. And I was like, oh, I'm, I'm done for. Yeah. <laughs> well, it, it's funny you say that, John, because we were, Joy and I were talking over lunch. At, uh, I think that that's kind of the difference in the fact that uh, I, of course, have, was never at any benches with alcoholic beverages. John, I was an angel. But if I was, uh, and I'm sure, like you just said with your uncles, when the cops brought me back to my father, there was not my father, you know, fighting. Uh, you know, like, oh, my son wouldn't do that. He, he would, just like you said, he would just say, I'll take it from here. And I remember I used to even say to the cops, you take me with you. I don't want to, you don't leave me here. Take me with you because I don't want him to take it from there. And I'll, I'll talk to that too because I, I also came from a divorced family. So I didn't really have a father figure as much growing up. But my mom was dad and mom. So like you said about your grandmother, that was my mom. Drill sergeant was on me all the time. Yeah, and John, you made a great point with the, it's not just what's going to be talking about manhood. It's, it's womanhood also, which mm-hmm. Joy will, of course, be able to speak to that more than John and I will. But, uh, you know, th- that is, it's definitely... I guess for all of us, uh, I'm not going to tell anyone's ages, but we're we're relatively close. John and I are way older than Joy, but oh, we're in the same kind of kind of ballpark. And I, I think today's just society, I don't know what the correct word is, is a lot different. Um, and that's one of the things that needs to be changed in terms of, you know, like I, I have friends who are Boston cops now. And I remember when they first got on the force, they were like, geez, when we were kids, like, you know, we, we never talked back to the police. Mm-hmm. The thought of that mm-hmm. would be unheard of. Like, yeah. our parents would kill us. He's like, now nah, I'm out in the beat. Oh, I'm, I'm working. And, you know, these kids are telling us to, you know, go bleep and bleep and all that. And it's it's just a, it's an odd and different type of time. Very I disrespectful. Guess. Yeah, I guess disrespectful yeah. is the word that yeah, you would use. Extremely. So, for instance, Joy, we, you know, some of those times where there may have or may not have been uh, alcoholic beverages around underage kids, right? Um, the cops would show up and any of this, there was always, it was always the punk one that would always run his mouth <laughs> to the cops. Right. And we were just like, Oh, come on, Mikey or Jimmy, you don't have to say that. Like they're going to let us go. Stop it. And then like, they keep running their mouth. And then, you know, the cop come over and, and literally kick him in the ass. Wow. Like, give him a, a boot in the ass. Like, Hey, you keep it up, keep running your mouth. I'm going to bring you, I'm going to bring you in and we're going to show up at your house and see how, how that goes with your parents. And like, that was like the taboo, like, okay, my tough days, my tough guy act is over. No, please don't bring me home. Mm-hmm. And you, you know, you take a boot in the butt and you just, you're okay with it. Do that now. And parents want to go after the police department. Like, how dare you put your hands on my kid? And it's like, so where, where do we go? Where's the balance? Right. So I just think we went so far to the one extreme, like you can't talk to pe- the people a certain way. You can't treat them a certain way. You can't, can't we say, we, we use the term, can't put hands on. Well, the lack of that has us where we are now. So if in the army, 
uh, in the Marine Corps, in the, in the military in general, after we do things, we do what, what are called after action reviews to see how we can always improve upon what we do. Well, in society, we should be doing the same thing, but mm-hmm. you know, not that, that we're militarized. You look at it like, okay, so this is what we did. How can we do it differently and improve on it? But we're not. We just keep going more and more further to an extreme to where uh, manhood and womanhood, I think, culminate under an umbrella of being a parent. Mm-hmm. Right. Absolutely. Women, women aren't showing what motherhood and womanhood looks like and not enough strong male role models mm-hmm. are showing where they're supposed to fit. And where it, what it means to be a man with manhood and to be a father. Like I have two children. I'm a, I'm a single parent. Fortunately, because of all the, the things I'm going on with, with the army, the work they put me through, I don't have my children co-located with me. So that is a fortunate thing for me. But if I was a single dad and had my children here, some of these things I've been able to be exposed to Mark and joy, I, I probably wouldn't be able to participate because I'd, I would be a single parent and I can't just walk off on my kids. Mm -hmm. So I have an immense amount of respect for single moms Mm -hmm. because it, it is tough. It is not impossible. It is not an impossible feat. I've watched single moms do it all throughout our lives, raising children, going to schools, being success, having a successful career. And what's it take to do that? Guts and grit. grit. Yes. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) Well, it's, it's, you know, uh, I, I just not just to go on the single mom. So I don't have any kids. Uh, John has two. Joy has a lovely daughter, but uh, like, I, I have a lot of godchildren and I'm a, I'm a big entertainer of children, I guess. Like little kids like to play with uncle Mark. But when I, when I, when I see my friends who are parents, it's one of the most impressive things I've ever seen. Like I always say, I don't know how you guys do it. Like I run around with them all day, play sports with them, take them in the water to catch crabs. And then I give them back. Then at the end of the day, like, you know, when they when there's any issues, I'm like, oh, no, no, take them back and you go deal with it. So to, to all you parents out there, that's just being a ba- parent takes guts and grit. Once you have that kid, mm. life is just different for the rest of your life. There's no taking off the Colombian mm-hmm. hippo trips. There's <laughs> none, none of that stuff. So it's it's definitely guts and grit being a um, parent. But uh, we are getting to what time is it right now? Do we how long have we been on? Uh, I, well, yeah, so John, why don't we talk for a few more minutes about your life, and then we're going to end our first inaugural episode of Guts and Grit so that we can get to John's next part of his life uh, when he joins the National Guard and some other things. But So, Johnny, you're, you're now up um, up in Weymouth, I think we left it off, and, and you're the cops now, and you're working at Fenway, um, and then you want to go from there? Sure. Uh, just a little bit on Fenway, other than the plain clothes detail I would be working there chasing after the scalpers I used to love working the dugout uh, at the time the manager was Jim Jim Rice World Hall of Famer guy we grew up watching and I, uh, I, I take care of myself I'd like to think I can do you know 10 or 20 push-ups every now and then and Jim Rice made it very well known he'd come over and sit with me he's a big gun fanatic he would talk about guns with me and then ask me if I could hit a baseball and he's like I like I need to get you out on this field because, you know, they had Jose Canseco then mm-hmm. and Canseco would come up and he'd look me up and down. I'd look him up and down like, I don't know who's bigger, but I think I'm probably better at this than you. But OK. <laughs> so there was, even though I wasn't on the team, I did the dugout enough that there was a lot of trash talking going back and forth. So I used to enjoy that a lot. 
Well, those guys. I'll, I'll tell you, Johnny, so a little story about Fenway for you, you'll enjoy. So when I was Fenway security, uh, along the third baseline, they used to have somebody, uh, a, a blue coat, which is what we were called, sitting in a little stool, and your job was to catch the foul balls. Now, uh, I consider myself an athlete, but more with football and hockey. I was never a uh, hockey, as John said, in, in the Boston area. Hockey's what we all were, you know, kids, we were all going to be Jay Miller, Chris Nyland. Um, so they put me in that position. Now, they used to give you a glove so that you could catch the balls. But I was so bad at baseball, I would forget the glove on purpose. So when I fluffed all the grounders and stuff, I'd be like, oh, I wasn't wearing a glove. But I will say the Fenway days were uh, quite a fun time. I remember Canseco uh, being there. I remember Rice as the, uh, as the GM. I also remember watching him in batting practice at whatever age he was back then, just crushing the baseball uh, and just thinking to myself, it, it was it was definitely surreal. Um, it must have been for you too, John, growing up there and actually working in Fenway and getting into the dugout and you know getting behind the green monster. Uh, you know, it was definitely a, an experience I enjoyed. Yeah, it, it, you think about it, Mark, compared to how like how things look on the outside right now, which you know how boys and girls are growing. It just doesn't seem those same types of opportunities are there or the, or they're just not pursuing those types of things. Cause I, I look at all that stuff. That, that was what contributed to us growing up. Yeah. Oh yeah. We started to learn things, you get exposed to things um, and you learn to cope. And it, it, it's also meeting other people like, you know, going back to, and I'm going to do a little comparison here. Like, you know, you said you were walking through the Lennox. I know that like in today's society, Race is an issue. I mean, it's always getting yelled around. People are fighting over that. But I, I would bet the Marine Corps helps you a ton because you're out, you know, when you're in the Marine Corps, you're meeting everyone from around the country, all races, all creeds, all everything. And then you go through that to work in the Lennox. That must have made it easier. Is, you know, does that sound correct? Yeah. So we had about 94 privates in my basic training platoon. And we had uh, four drill instructors. Three of the drill instructors were black and probably 80% of the Marine recruits in my, my platoon were black or Hispanic. So they, you know, being white, we were the minority in that group. And when we got introduced to our drill instructors, I thought they were animals. Like they were jacked, they were incredible shape. They were mean, like they just had this look about them. And I was just like, what did I, I oh man, I, I think I might end up hating my mom for making me do this. Like, <laughs> this, this is horrible. Like, and you'd sit there at night and you're laying in bed and you just be like, what, what did I do so wrong in life to end up here? <laughs> right? Yeah. And, and then the next, you know, it, it, I mean, I got some really good stories that I explained to soldiers in leadership as well as junior soldiers in the army that helped break a lot of these barriers with race. We had no choice. We had no choice. We had to deal with it. It weren't private showers. It was one big wide open shower. Everyone showering together. Now I'm not saying everyone in the neighborhood needs to come to my house. We all share my shower, <laughs> but, but I mean, those types of things, you're coming into an environment where like, Hey, if, if you need to help somebody and help fight or help treat them medically, we can't have this race stuff as a barrier. Like a Marine is a Marine, a soldier, soldier, sailor, sailor. We, we're gonna, you, you guys are gonna crawl through mud and crap together. You're gonna roll around in it. You're gonna be on top of each other, that's it. And so it broke down, especially like you mentioned, Mark, 
in Boston, growing up, it's very segregated. Mm-hmm. Like South Boston was predominantly Irish. Jamaica Plain was predominantly Hispanic, right? Roxbury, Mattapan, predominantly black. And it was like, if you went over in one of those other neighborhoods and you got lumped up and got whooped, no one's going to feel bad for you. Everyone's going to be like, what were you doing over there? Yeah, yeah. You knew not to go over there, right? So going in the Marine Corps broke down all those barriers where like me walking through Mattapan or Roxbury after the Marine Corps, I didn't think nothing of it. I was just like, oh, we're, we're just all the same. Yeah, exactly. And to you Boston boys, um, for those of us who are not from Boston, the Lennox that you're talking about, I take this as a... It's a housing project. Okay. I don't think it's there anymore. It's actually gone now. I think it's been... It was down off of Melnia Castle. So it's a, it's a section of Boston called Roxbury. Really bad. The Lennox projects were ruthless with drug dealing and, mm. and uh, violent crime. And it, that's why I was so shocked when I was like, are you guys sure you want me down there? You, you want to put me there? Like, oh, you'll be fine. I think maybe they just wanted to write me off, to be honest with you. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I mean, back to the whole, when you talk about manhood and race, like I, I noticed like one of the, the, the things today is football is not pushed as much like when I was a kid. Like when, when we went to high school, everyone played football. Even if you didn't like football, almost everyone played it or soccer or whatever. But that was another place, like when I went away to college to play, where you, you were mixed with, you know, everybody of all races and you were teammates, you got along and you had to win and you didn't, you know, you didn't care who was, what color they were next to you. You just, well, not obviously milk football has nothing to do with, you know, the military is much different, but uh, it's still, uh, you know, that's why I, I always, you know, push for people to play sports because mm. it, it mm. shows you team building uh, I mean, besides being fun and, and getting exercise, um, which God knows. John, since we started this show, by the way, I told Joy, I got to get in shape now. I can't be sitting on here with Melson. <laughs> if he comes to visit, I got to be able to do 50 push-ups at the drop of a hat, for God's sakes. And one more thing, John. I'm pretty sure. Have you ever been a drill instructor, John? No, I have never been a drill instructor. I was a rangers, ranger instructor. Mm-hmm. So that's almost worse, correct? Like, that's your special forces instructor almost? Like, that's, you know, we'll get into that, but... Well, no, it's, you know, you teach uh, at Ranger School, the future leaders of the Army, it's considered one of the premier leadership schools in the entire Department of Defense. So all the sister services will um, try to get soldiers or uh, members of their organization to attend. We've had Marines, Air Force, Navy SEALs. Um, we have Green Berets come through Ranger School. It's always like, uh, you know, steel sharpening steel, way to keep sharpening that blade to be more but be better at what we do. All right. Well, let me, re- let me rephrase it though. Like when you were instructing there, would I be right in saying you, at times you were screaming in people's faces? No, no, not like a drill instructor in regular, you know, it's different. Maybe a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> just a, just a tad. I'd say. Yeah. All right. Cause I'm, I was going to get to the point where, you know, you say when you first saw your drill instructors that, you know, you were like, I, I'm gonna, you know, mom, mom, why'd you do this to me? I'm pretty sure there are some young kids who probably think the same about you, no? After me so, instructing It's funny you say that because I, I, when I was put in and given that opportunity, it was such an honor to be able to go back and contribute to a schoolhouse and a training environment that's helped me be successful. And to think that I'm going to hopefully have an impact in other people's lives like the instructors had been for me. And I think back always to the, the professionalism, how crisp and sharp, and how regimented and hardcore my drill instructors appeared, um, I was like, that's when, when Ranger students come walking through that door and they look, they, they look in my direction, I want them to see what a Ranger's supposed to look like. Mm-hmm. And like, 
look at me and maybe like I looked at them, drill instructors on the bus and look away. Cause if I look long enough, he's going to suck my soul out. Like <laughs> I do not want to mess with that guy standing over there looking at me. Um, so one of the things about Ranger school as well as Sapper school is, is, you know, considered some of the premier leadership schools in the army and that you're trying to simulate chaos and stress that one of these future leaders may experience on the battlefield. So it, you're teaching them a lot about themselves on how to cope, not so much in coming up with the best and perfect plan, but how to show guts and grit and get through and accomplish the mission. Right. So my yelling no at no time, I was a ranger instructor almost three years. And at no time during my attention, getting raising of my voice, and motivational choice of words. Did I ever have a single complaint filed against me? Because I never, it was never um, driven upon an individual as an individual. It was more so like, I need you to be able to cope because you may be leading me or you could possibly be leading my son or daughter on the next battlefield. I want to make sure you're going to take them to the, to the win. Right. That's that's John. I I tell people often that I sleep better at night knowing you're the guy that's protecting me. I'll tell you that much. <laughs> so, all right, listen, we're coming to the end of our first show. Uh, we're going to come back again. We'll be here next week, and we're going to dive into the second half of John's life. And then after that show, we're going to have a show on manhood, and then we're going to start bringing in some special guests. What do you think of that, Joy and John? That'll great. be some fun, yeah. So, Johnny, I, I want to thank you for our inaugural episode of Guts and Grit. Uh, I will talk to you briefly offline. We want to thank all of you who are watching us. Uh, below in our links, you can follow us on Facebook, on YouTube. We have a Podbean account, which, of course, is linked to Apple and all that good stuff. And we will have a website soon that we are working on. And, of course, we are hoping soon to have our Guts and Grit logo and merch up and running. Bear with us. We are... Our couple of old Boston failed hockey players uh, and a treasure diver here. So we're not stupid. <laughs> I played football. And uh, that's another thing. Flag. She played football, too. So, But we want to thank you all for joining us. Johnny and Joy, any last uh, comments? Uh, the only thing I want to say is, like, it's a great name of the show. Um, I hope I can represent it well. I really appreciate you guys involving me on this and getting a chance to push that, this message out. Um, and, you know, those that have served with me and, and those that have grown up and known me, you guys know, I, I practice what I preach. I'm not going to tell you, you know, like, don't ever quit because I won't quit. So I'm only telling you what, you know, what I, I'm willing to put, put myself through as well. Um, you know, when I, I make a, I make a joke to a lot of these young soldiers, I'm like, Hey, if you had a chance to get in the ring with Mike Tyson, would you get in the ring with him? And they're like, Oh, well, oh, I'm like, well, you never know if you would win him. If you, you might be that one guy that gets that lucky punch and knock him out. But if you don't get in the ring, you're not going to be the man in the arena. You never know if you'll succeed. So the fear of failing, mm. don't ever let that stop you from trying to accomplish. You never know what you could do once you once you move forward. You know. Awesome. We're gonna. John, thank line. you. Thank you for what you do. Thank you for your encouragement and, and your service. Thanks, George. Joy. It's been, a, it's been a pleasure being here, Mark. Thanks. No, Johnny. We're going to have many more. We're looking forward to it. Joy, I'm on, uh, on behalf of myself, Joy and John, thank you for joining us on our first episode of Guts and Grit. We'd like it if you follow us, and we hope to see you on future shows. Have a great afternoon, and we'll see you all next week. Thanks a lot. Thank you.